0: Hey Last Looks Crew, how are you guys? Who's working? Who's not? Who is on a wonderful vacation? And who's looking forward to the WGA getting what they need so you can get back to work? Me? Well, I just wrapped my latest gig and now enjoying a little downtime. Now tell me, did you watch Game of Thrones? What about Stranger Things or Last of Us? Well, today on the show, I catch up with award-winning special effects makeup designer Barry Gower. And if you have watched any of the shows I just mentioned, you would have seen Barry's incredible work. Barry's work includes some pretty iconic characters like the Night King from Game of Thrones and of course you are familiar with Vecna from Stranger Things. These are the types of characters Halloween costumes are inspired by. Cosplayers love an aspiring makeup artist's dream of being a part of one day. So getting to find out more about Barry's career journey and his process was pretty rad. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed chatting to Barry. If you do enjoy the podcast and want to help me continue the show, there are some quick little things that you could do to help. Number one, share the podcast. If you love it, share it with others. Introducing the show to new listeners will definitely encourage me to continue. I mean, who doesn't enjoy seeing growth? <laughs> Number two, subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you use to stream it on. When a possible new listener sees your glowing review, of course they'll want to check it out. And when you subscribe, that just means when a new episode drops, it'll show in your listening library and ready for you to push play. And Number three, if you or someone you know has a brand that would like our listeners to hear about, be sure to shoot me a message about becoming a Last Look Sponsor. What does that mean? Well, you can get your brand mentioned on the podcast and introduce it to hairstylists and makeup artists that work in our industry internationally good idea right for more details dm me on instagram or email info at thelastlookspodcast.com easy always appreciate support from my last looks crew you guys are the reason i do this anyway enough of me rabbiting on This is the Massox Podcast, a show where we catch up with makeup artists and hairstylists working in the film and television industry around the world. I am your host, Jamie Lee, and today on the show, we catch up with UK-based special effects makeup artist, Barry Gower. On with the show. And now, a word from our sponsor.
1: Doing a job using temporary tattoos? Try Hookup Tattoo's Matte Sealer and Tattoo Remover Wipes. The sealer can be applied directly to the tattoo with a brush or sponge. When applied in layers, you can achieve the perfect satin or matte finish for the most realistic tattoo look. The sealer can be used for not only tattoos, but also on top of your prosthetic appliances for the perfect finish. Our temporary tattoo remover wipes are dermatologist tested and approved, so they are safe for all skin types. Hand to your actor at the end of the night with confidence that they will provide the perfect cleanup. They will also take off alcohol paints, PAX paints, and tattoo cover paints. Hookup Tattoos has a retail line of over 100 tattoos and provides custom tattoo services. Proudly serving the film and television industry for 10 years. Can be found at hookuptattoos.com or your local professional beauty shop. Temporary tattoos by Hookup Tattoos. Because this relationship is not permanent.
2: And now, our feature presentation. Pictures up. Last looks. Rolling. And...
0: Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Barry. Lovely. Thank you very much,
2: Jamie. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So this is where our story begins. I want you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Barry, and when he grew up, he wanted to be... A monster maker. You did?
2: I think so, yeah. I wanted to cover people in rubber, yeah, for as long as I can remember. Absolutely. I think my wife... Sarah and I, we talk about this all the time about um, following your dreams and becoming what you you were um, aspiring to be when you were a child. And um, funnily enough, actually, um, going slightly off, off track, Sarah and I have actually got um, a parents' evening tomorrow night at our daughter's school. Not parents' evening, it's a careers evening. Oh, yeah. So we're actually going to... Um, Put a little display of props and bits and pieces up and talk to 16 17 year olds about them leaving school Mm -hmm. and what they aspire to be and for as long as i can remember i've always wanted to do special effects makeup and prosthetics i think it probably started as a child i used to live in the north of england in a little town called preston funnily enough the same place where mark coulier is from (laughs) Uh, and another makeup artist adrian rigby they're all (laughs) from preston amazing but my dad was a manager of the local cinema the Odeon. oh that's cool so as like a you know six, seven year old, he used to take me to like press screenings of films and uh, I used to go to all kinds of shows and what have you. But my dad used to take me to the cinema. Every weekend I used to go into work with him and I'd just be behind the foyer, you know, pouring a a cup of Coke and uh, getting some popcorn and um, I used to, I I was privy to, he'd always give me all the sort of um, leftover posters and all the lobby cards and everything. So I I became a film buff. um, Yeah,
0: I was going to say, this sounds like the childhood of my dreams <laughs>
2: oh my god it was amazing I mean, it, was, it was perfect so yeah I think that was my introduction to film at a very early age and then it wasn't until a few years later I think I moved uh, to the Midlands uh, in England with my mum and I came across Fangoria magazine when I was about ah. maybe 12 13 and yeah. um, that was it really just seeing all the 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 behind-the-scenes making of and the builds of uh, special effects makeup and sculpture and mould-making and application. and, And I remember being absolutely bowled over by it, thinking, oh, my God, this is a career. You know, people do this for a living. And um, I was a huge horror geek and monster geek, and uh, I was following the likes of, I mean, Tom Savini was probably one of my first childhood heroes, Uh, Mm -hmm. obviously Rick Baker and Dick Smith. I think um, my auntie actually was probably quite a bad influence on my childhood as well, because she used to take me down the local video store. Every Sunday, we would have Sunday lunch, and she'd take me down the local video store, and we'd we'd be hiring video nasties when I was about... you know about like 10 or 11 or 12 and he was just like evil dead and the thing an american werewolf and you know i mean and and bad parenting we're doing exactly the same with our daughter lottie now you know she, she she's 11 and yeah. she she's seen some films which uh, i know her, her friend's parents wouldn't even dream of letting them see um yeah but she's she comes in and out of our workshop she's been around severed heads and dead bodies and all kinds of gory looking things and creatures and all sorts of things so she's sort of immune to it so yeah she she watches these films very critically and she's really good at continuity errors and spotting bad makeups and um so um i think hopefully we're bringing her up in in the in the right footsteps anyway but Anyway.
0: yeah I mean as a as a parent because I know I've like I've heard interviews with actors and stuff and they're asked like how would you feel if your if your child got into this line of work and a lot of actors are like oh god no I hope they don't but <laughs> it sounds like you'd be pretty happy if it was the it continued to be a family business yeah
2: I, th- I think Sarah and I are really um I think our main hope with Lottie is that she does something artistic or musical mm-hmm. or, or creative I think in the creative kind of fields, really. Um, Sarah's very academic and she's very intelligent, unlike myself. I'm more artistic and uh, sort of hands-on creatively, but I'm not too great with facts and figures. And I think Lottie probably takes a a little bit more from myself rather than Sarah. She's at a wonderful school at the moment. She's really into drama and uh, dance and music and loves art and textiles. So whenever she does come into the workshop here she's always really enthusiastic to sit and chat with our crew and see what they're doing and join in and so I, I think even if she didn't pursue a career in makeup effects i think i'd i'd be over the moon if she did something creative and artistic so whether it's through art or music or drama i'd be really really happy so it's but i think the the main goal for us is just to as a, you know most parents say really it's it's encouraging it's encouraging their children yeah. and that was something I was so incredibly lucky with growing up with my mum because it was a single parent family. My, my, my dad died when I was nine, when I still mm. lived up north.
0: Yeah.
2: And my mum, we, we moved close to my family and my mum brought me up on her own and she always 110% supported what I wanted to do. I didn't really know that there were courses or anything that you could take to learn prosthetics and makeup effects. So I, I went to art college and... Still, not really knowing what what I could do with my life, and then I applied to it was London College of Fashion in Central London, which was it was a film, TV, and theatre hair and makeup course, but they had a prosthetic module on it. Oh, cool! And I applied there. It was a two year course at the time, and um, and I didn't get in my first year. I tried, and I didn't have any. I had an art portfolio, and I had a few bits of makeup that I'd done at home, but I, I had no hairdressing experience which was a big key part of the course
0: Mm. so
2: i went home and did it did a year on a on a little hairdressing course um oh nice shampoo and setting old ladies hair and doing perms and and then and then reapplied and got in the following year and i i think they probably just had pity on me really and felt sorry for me so gave me a a place and uh (laughs) um did the, did a two year course and then met a lot of industry professionals while I was on that course. I think one of the, my first most influential figures I think in my career was an um, incredible make effects artist called jeff Jeff Portas mm. who used to be one of the key partners of a British Make effects company called Image Animation with uh, Bob nice. Keane. And they're the guys who did the Hellraiser films And Nightbreed cool. And this is the company that a lot of people Like Mark Coulier and Neil Gorton And Paul Spateri And so so many individuals Steve Painter, they all started off in this, uh, this company
0: And at that age And you're you're kind of coming from the background That you've come from of really enjoying these types of films And makeups and stuff Is it pretty cool getting to meet these people To be like, oh my god, you actually created Absolutely. these characters
2: Yeah 100%, yeah, 100% I mean, these people it was, it was kind of like, you know, I know they say don't meet your heroes, but I mean, <laughs> Jeff was a bit of a hero uh, at the time and so was, um, you know, also got taught by Mark uh, Coulier at college and uh, Little John as well, who used to work at image animation. It was just incredible being taught by these in- industry professionals who'd been doing prosthetics for, you know, a good 10, 15 years already. Yeah. So it was kind of leaving college and it just snowballing from there really. I sort of went on to the BBC. They had a visual effects department, which wasn't visual effects as it was as it's coined now, CGI, it was pretty much anything practical that was made right. by BBC television at the time and it's huge department big warehouse that you could be working on one show making prosthetics for a science fiction show the one end of the room and then the following week you could be building an exploding shed or something for for another show so oh that's cool it, it was it was a really good period of probably about maybe 12 months to two years after le- leaving college really learning an awful lot more
0: big variety
2: that's it yeah actually i mean it's was great. A lot of prop making, a lot of mold making, but prosthetics and painting and then really going from there, sort of working for Mark Coulier, working for Dave White and Nick Dubman, uh, Neil Gorton. Um, Neil Scanlon sort of I kind of hoard my way around the makeup effects community really probably for the best part of about maybe 15 years
0: yeah Um, I mean and as you should (laughs) absolutely if you've got that kind of training ground and that variety and to get that experience it's just like
2: why not that's awesome I think it's it's really important saying to a lot of youngsters who who approach us as well about work is that Mm. i think it's really important that you get out there and you work for as many different people as possible as well yeah and you can sort of fine-tune your techniques you can see how people do things differently um i think it's just good to work in different environments for different people and get to know people's different traits and what have you and I, i think it's one thing that has made myself probably a wouldn't say a better boss at all but i I think it's it's good to work for different people and see the strengths and weaknesses of people and Mm. things you like traits about certain bosses and things you're not so fond of i think sarah and i start our own company i think we we've always considered ourselves to be a a kind of a greatest hits of the best traits of people that we've we've worked for in the past so you know we we're always strong believers of treat people how you, you'd like to be treated yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think that's another good reason for working for a lot of different people where you see how people um, handle stress differently as well. Yeah. conditions when there's large workloads and, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> tight deadlines. You know, yeah, always. <laughs>
0: Very um, do you feel like when you were coming up and experiencing all these different ways that that bosses and work colleagues and stuff did things, do you feel like you were consciously at times going, oh, wow, yeah, I really like how they're doing that. I'm going to, I, I want to do that one day if I'm, um, you know, leading a team or, oh, God, that." the way they handled that was terrible i don't want to <laughs> head head down that road uh, never doing that um do you feel like you were like consciously thinking that at the time or uh... I, th- I think so
2: yeah i think so yeah. i mean i think for my first few years it was all about learning and i think you know you, you do get to a point in your career as a, as a self-employed make effects artist where you especially when you've worked for different people um mm. you become accustomed to doing things in a certain way so you, you might go and work for another company and be asked to do something very similar to what you've just done but that supervisor might be asking you to do things in the complete reverse way of what you've just done it and uh, it's fascinating because having worked for a lot of people I do remember in the past thinking why on earth would you make that decision that's one of the most ridiculous decisions to have made and I wouldn't have done it that way or what have you And, and it's now interesting now running our own company that I can almost completely relate to the decisions that Previous bosses have made, and I could see why why they made. A lot of it is down to I think of being self-employed. You're hired, and you're on a bench, and you you're given a role. And I Mm. I think a lot of people don't really see the big picture and the grand scale of running a large department and all the responsibilities with it. So it's uh, it's fascinating having worked for a lot of different people, and now. Having our own company, hiring a large crew, and hiring a lot of the individuals who I used to work alongside on a bench as well. So yeah. I'd, I'd say a good, you know, eighty percent of the people we hire are friends I've known for the last 25, 26 years or so. Um, oh, nice, so it's fascinating. But um, yeah, going back to working for a of different people, I think I definitely became accustomed to working in certain styles and ways. And I had probably two or three favorite bosses that I would always go back to because I, I love the way in which they ran their company, the way in which they treat their crew, spoke to their crew. Um, I think the most most influential people in my career really, I think, um, have probably been Mark Coulier and David White. And I think I've probably learned the most off them. I'll always be grateful to the pair of them, but I mean also there's there's many other companies as well. Nick Dubman, I had an incredible period of work with on the Harry Potter films. Yeah, and yeah. um also learned an awful lot from neil gordon as well there's a lot of individuals and companies that um i'm really really grateful to so it's uh, it's why yeah starting out any uh, advice to give to, to newcomers i would say is, is work for as many and many different people as you can
0: yeah um, i different. think it just working in that and all those different environments as well i'm guessing at a earlier stage in your career it also helps you to not get too attached to something that you're creating because then someone's going to come along and be like no we're starting again it's gone in a different direction we need to completely scrap this and start again and as a designer and heading stuff you also have to still be able to do that and know when to do it and feel okay about doing it i'm sure
2: yeah it's it's, it's really interesting because i think um a few times actually I've, I've worked for different companies and i think as artists we're obviously very proud of what we do and we take mm-hmm. a lot of pride in, in what we do and we always you know I, I think it's a very healthy competition in the um the uk Prosthetics field, where everybody uh, there's, there's healthy competition. I think people want to out out better themselves and be as good as others and push the envelope. It's important that I think as an individual, I'd always have a lot of pride in my work, and I think mm. a lot of people do have a lot of pride in what they do. But I think it's that understanding of knowing that at the end of the day, you're being employed by a production or you're being employed by a company, mm. and you you are a tool in a way that's being used to create a product and you're being high because of your skill and mm-hmm. your talent but effectively you are answering to somebody else and I, and I think it's one thing I, I found a few times quite difficult because I was so proud of the work I was doing to be told that it's not necessarily correct or you haven't quite hidden the brief or you're given some constructive criticism. I did, I did occasionally find that quite hard yeah. and it was on one particular project I remember really strongly believing in something other design and build the particular character but it wasn't actually what was being asked of me and i remember being knocked down a peg or two about it mm. and i remember after that point thinking my god it's not all about me it's actually <laughs> the big picture and you have to remember that you are providing a service for somebody at the end of the day yeah. and um, it's quite interesting now employing people and employing my friends I used to work alongside mm-hmm. and seeing how they operate in that way as well and you have some people who totally see the big picture and they are absolutely open and welcome to any kind of constructive criticism Mm -hmm. and there's a few individuals we hire really talented sculptors and painters art finishers and they really listen and you're never in a situation where you feel compelled that you can't tell them what it is that you want I think one of my traits I have as boss is uh, Sarah calls it calls it my shit sandwich where (laughs) I I find it really hard if, if I find if I see a piece of work sculpture or mould or silicon head or some pieces that somebody's painted, I find it really hard if I have anything negative to say to be quite critical to that person because yeah. A, I don't want to hurt their feelings and mm. I just think I, I need to um, tell them in a way that I can get the best from them without hurting their feelings. So I without usually start... Without crashing them. <laughs> com- Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, tools down and they've gone. It's... Uh, so I will usually start with a compliment and, mm. and tell them what I'm really liking about the work. Mm. Then sort of drip in the what I'm not so fond of and what I think we can tweak and try and do it in as pleasant a manner as possible and then end on another compliment. So I sort of wrap it up in a couple of compliments pretty much. And I found for myself, I think that that technique seems to work quite well. There are times where I need to be quite upfront and just approach the situation headlong. I think sometimes, you know, you need to speak to people again, the way in which you'd like to be spoken to yourself. So I find if that you're really polite and I can Wrap up her criticism inside some compliments. I always seem to get the best out of people, so it's <laughs> uh, it's fascinating. It's, it really is. So
0: Barry's using sweet bread with his shit sandwiches.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, will I love it. Wrap it up very
0: I mean, it is so crazy because we are, you know, all come from like such creative backgrounds and doing creative work and artists and things. And it's then there's this whole other side of it where you're like, oh my god, I've got a fucking minute people and a bunch of creative, sometimes sensitive artists. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's something that a lot of us don't, go to school to learn so it's just through as you were saying that experience of working with different people and remembering how they made you feel at times and then trying to continue on you know with the positive it's it's just quite interesting how we stumble through (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> These careers figuring it out as we go. It's fascinating. And I think you, you, you've hit the nail on the head where it's,
2: you know, it's it, it, when you do projects where there are a lot of individuals, I mean, you, it's a lot of personalities. Mm. And I remember working on the Harry Potter shows, and, and I always remember Nick Dubman saying that he... Not only was he the creature effects supervisor, but he was also a psychologist in a way as well, because right. it was actually <laughs> it was it was dealing with so many different problems and situations with the crew. And I think mm. I think it's inevitable when you hire a crew of like a hundred plus, you are going to have a lot of clashes of personality. You are going to have a lot of people who, who who have lots of situations outside of work, and it's dealing with that correctly. And we found it's been. That's probably one of the biggest challenges, I think, of, of, um, of running a company for myself and Sarah mm. and taking mm. on projects where we do have a, a large team, because we're our own loan-out company as such that a, a production will hire us. We're, we are nine times out of 10, we are not on the production payroll. We are our own entity. We are a loan-out company. So we don't actually have a HR department. We don't have human resources. I mean, human human resources at BGFX is, is myself and Sarah. So yeah. Um, Obviously, we do know the majority of the the people we hire very, very well because we've known them for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. There are many 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 different situations that come up while whilst you're at work and it is it's learning how to deal with those situations correctly is probably one of the biggest challenges with what we do it's like you know the, the work side and the speaking to the production aside it's actually mm. staff it's a very complex process i think all the artisans that you know all the artists that we um, employ being creatives there's not an awful lot of very academic people here we're all artists i think the majority of us really some somewhere are on some kind of scale spectrum i think somewhere to be able to turn on this this tap of art so i think it's um lots of different personalities lots of different traits and we have an awful lot of introverts who work with us are incredibly talented artists but they're not necessarily very social or don't work well in teams and it's Mm. it's figuring out people's personalities where to put them best and how to um, how to operate with them i mean it's really fascinating i think it is it is really really fascinating yeah i think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have as a company really yeah yeah especially at the moment i mean i know we were chatting just briefly before we came on air but it's on our current project we've got probably about 110 people with us at the moment that's, oh my um, gosh that's in the that's workshop and then that's on set as well so that mm-hmm. that's that's a lot of people and you know we've got some of the most talented artists in the UK working with us and and from and from europe actually and we've got a few canadians with us as well actually that we met on the last of us that we've we've since brought over um, to come and work with us on this current project so uh, that's
0: awesome i mean with numbers like that you're gonna have to be starting to pull people from somewhere aren't you <laughs> that's
2: it yeah i mean we, we are literally sitting down and crunching numbers at the moment for on set application artists and we've pretty much scraped the pool dry in the uk of wow. artists and so we are now looking at um to Bring people from abroad to come and join us. Um, oh, it's awesome! But it's but it's exciting because it's yeah, yeah. we we're getting to work with a lot of artists, some of which we've never worked with before. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's it exciting times. That's cool.
0: So looking through your IMDb, Barry, it's all very impressive, amazing. I love it. <laughs> um, and I just want to chat about some of the projects that you've done, and maybe like a, I know that they're all your you know, all your projects are your children. And I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of favorites. But um, I would love to hear of a couple of favorites, whether it's just the experience that you had, whether it was the work that you were doing, the final outcome that you ended up watching on screen and super proud of. I'd love to know what a couple of favorites are. Yeah, I
2: I think, well, I mean, S- still, probably one of my favourites, and pre starting our company was the Iron Lady film with Mark Coulier. That was one of the uh, I don't know. It's one of the last jobs I did with Mark. Or I-, I did maybe about three other jobs post that. But it was such a personal job. Mark had hired me, I think, for another show which had started just before then, and then he had the call to transform Meryl Streep into an elderly Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so he got me on board with that. And uh, I was involved in all the sculpture, the makeups, and Mark was sculpting appliances as well. And it it was a a really small team that he had at his company and then had the opportunity to go on set with Mark and apply the makeup every day. And it was was this incredible little, little unit where it was like the closest really to, I've had it since then, but it's the closest really to being a personal, to an actor and actress. And we were in this little bubble with Meryl and her hair and makeup artist at Roy Helland. And it was just an incredible experience. Every day on set was um, a really wonderful experience. And I'll always look back at that fondly, I think, of it being a sort of a highlight, sort of makeup of my career. I think in, in a way, after doing that project, I, I really, I spoke long and hard with my wife, Sarah, saying, you know, these are the kind of projects I would love to do myself. Mm. And I think that was, in a way, a little bit of a catalyst to starting to think at that time about maybe we should start thinking about forming a company.
0: Yeah, I think I'm ready.
2: Yeah. And, and we formed our company about 2010. But I was doing bits and pieces out at, at my garage in the back garden, as well as working for Nick on Harry Potter. But it wasn't until we we were approached for game of thrones in 2013 i think it was that was the first major project kind of
0: kicked up a notch
2: yeah yeah i mean we we went through the interview we were up against several other make effects companies in england and in a way i think we felt we accidentally got it and sarah and i we didn't even have a workshop at the time we didn't have a crew and i was just coming out of working on a job for animated extras in the uk and mark coulier was hiring for dracula on told dave white was hiring for guardians of the galaxy and suddenly all the uk crews got eaten up and we found it really difficult to find a team so i think the reason bringing up game of thrones is that i will always regard that as one of my favorite projects because it was the first project that really put us on the map
0: but also it's game
2: of thrones dude like come on Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we joined. It was, I mean, we joined midway through the franchise. Yeah. You know, it's, it's season four we joined, and mm. it was actually down to there's an incredible producer called Bernie Caulfield who sort of took a punt on us, really, and hired Sarah and myself. And you know, we will always be grateful to her and David and Dan, the two showrunners. But we had so many wonderful experiences. It was a, like five year period on Game of Thrones that we look back, and there's so many highlights. I mean, it, it was a roller coaster. It was like every year we'd be getting towards the end of a season. And it was so incredibly hard and we would be saying, No, nope, never again, that's us. We'll throw in the towel <laughs> and then months later, rose tinted glasses, you know, why wouldn't we go back? No.
0: Honestly, I feel like, you know, I have not had a child, but people tell me about, you know, what the brain blocks out with childbirth a lot of the time. Yeah. And yeah. and that's why women will do it again and again. <laughs> yes. and I always think that about jobs it's just like in the moment you're like fuck me, this is (laughs) trauma, trauma this is so hard and then you know you have like a tiny or you even get to the end of the job and you have a a little break and then you're like yeah let's do it again (laughs)
2: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, I I don't know whether you're the same as me, but it's, it's you, you know, you will work long, ridiculous hours, long and hard, you're absolutely mm. shattered. Mm. All, you're, all you're dying for is a break, just a vacation. Mm-hmm. And three days into a vacation, if I'm sitting around a pool, I'm dying to get back to work. I think it is actually having a break, letting your brain recharge and mm. And then suddenly getting the hunger for it again. And I think it's because what we do, we always say what we do is it's a lifestyle, really. It, it isn't a career or a, it's not a job, really. It's we're incredibly passionate about it. It's yeah. a hobby. All my friends are work friends. And um, I really enjoy coming to work, not necessarily every day, but most days. We've been very lucky. I think, I think over, over my sort of career, it's been about 20 odd years now, about 26, 27 years. It's nice to have a combination of projects I look back on fondly of shows that I've worked for other people on and really really look back and loved that experience and now it's really rewarding making these new experiences with with my wife and our own company and hiring all our friends and I I think it's great that the older I'm getting I don't feel like I'm necessarily getting more jaded I'm actually Mm. getting more enjoyment out of projects that we're doing to date as well just in in the last sort of three years I think what, what one of my highlight standout projects I've done my whole career is probably Stranger Things and it's only yeah. the one season that we joined last year mm-hmm. but it was such an incredible production and lovely team of people that it was like this this family that we had not met before and they just welcomed us in with open arms and had the most incredible experience with them so it's um, great that we've had a lot of highlights and we feel very very lucky in, especially in recent years I think for the opportunities we've, we've been given.
0: So all of these character designs and and makeups and stuff that you've done and builds and if there was one character that you could look back on and just be like that you just absolutely loved with Everything that you have And it was your absolute favourite What what character would that be?
2: I think there's probably a couple Mm. I I would think, actually We have have some highlights in Game of Thrones I mean, the year we joined Was the year that they scripted The Night King So we worked with one of our close friends Howard Swindell Who's a British concept artist Mm. Who sketched a load of different ideas Based on the, the brief from the showrunners And from the Game of Thrones books as well By George R. R. Martin And he was a really fun character to design. And I think looking back, it's incredible that at the time we were we were really enjoying the work and getting a real kick out of creating these fancy characters. But I think it's nuts look if only I'd known then how well-received a character like that was going to be and mm. how iconic in sort of pop culture in a way, uh, which mm. sounds, oh, my God, that sounds like really <laughs> super-playing my, my trumpet. But it's it's fascinating how somebody like the the Night King has been, there's been so many cosplays. Oh, my goodness, it's been insane how many cosplays have been done and how many people have taken inspiration from a character like that. I think so, it's cool. in a similar kind of way, that, the character we did for Stranger Things, Vecna, has been a similar experience as well. It's It was slightly different where we joined the show and the, the, the show creators the Duffer brothers they already had a clear vision of what they wanted this character to be to look like so we had illustrations and concepts art, and we worked with those designs and then created all the prosthetics ourselves and again that's just been an incredible experience to be part of realizing that that character as well and how well that was perceived I think that was one of the shows which shut down during Covid so we'd mm. started just prior to the lockdown here in the UK and we had our three months off and then we came back to work and Strange Things was the first show that we started back up on and we had like an unprecedented amount of time to actually work on this one character and it was just a handful of sculptors we had uh, Duncan Jarman and Pat Foad, uh, two incredible UK prosthetic artists and sculptors here were working on Vecna and we just had this micro team in the workshop creating the moulds and running all the silicon and foam appliances then half finishing everything there's a wonderful artist called Paula Eden who uh, ran all our art finishing for that character, and it was it was just a wholesome, really enjoyable experience bringing this character to life. And I just remembered that we we kept in touch with Matt and Ross Stuffer and the production for about yeah. six months, just updating them with all the latest news and photos and videos and all the processes, just to make sure we were completely on right on the right track. Yeah. And then we had. Um, We had a makeup test out in Atlanta, and I think we did a test on the Saturday. And then the character was due to film on the Wednesday, and (laughs) we were crapping ourselves, just thinking, Oh my God, I hope this, we we could be totally screwed. Yeah, what if
0: it's all wrong?
2: Oh my God. We we had one fitting with the actor Jamie Campbell Bower in the UK which went well, but it wasn't a final makeup test. We did the test in Atlanta, and um, thank goodness he was received really well. And then we um, we filmed within him three days later. And uh, But that was one of those projects which the, the team worked so hard. We were super proud of the work, really happy with the outcome. But prior to the show airing, I don't think I've ever been so anxious um, before <laughs> shows come out. And That's thinking, interesting. Oh, oh my God. How- How is he going to be received, you know, by the public? So, uh, again, very, very lucky anyway.
0: It must be pretty cool these days. How I mean, there's all these at-home makeup artists and stuff that are putting these reels together and their YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff, and and recreating characters that you guys have done on on television shows. It must be so cool to every now and again, like come across something like that online and be like, oh shit, all right, they've done a pretty oh, good absolutely.
2: job. <laughs> absolutely, no, it's it's fascinating. I mean, v- Vecna in particular mm. i've had so so many people reach out to me with artwork and cosplay makeups and uh, sculptures and my god this is this is an incredible work out there i mean really really talented artists and uh, you know, some of the stuff we've been looking in the workshop and oh my god that's better than what we've done that's absolutely beautiful <laughs> but, yeah, but there is some stunning and we're seeing it at the moment with um the last of us as well again I'm, i've been approached by a lot of people through social media of people yeah. doing their own take on you know these these different creature designs clickers and mm. infected characters it's really stunning work really stunning lots of paintings as well which i get a, a really big buzz out of i think what i find really interesting is when you see people who have sent me a private message and they've just had a mm. tattoo of vecna on their car oh, and it's like oh my, I, I you know it's it's nuts to believe people are are Getting inked, you know, permanently inked for life in the character that we've designed. So uh, it's um... (laughs) just
0: be glad it's a character you've designed, Barry, and not your own face. (laughs) Oh my goodness! <laughs> Could you imagine?
2: Oh my goodness! No. <laughs> yeah,
0: talk to actors. Sometimes and it is just like you know, uh, there's uh, whether they're uh, you know just famous people in general, and they're <laughs> tattooed on someone's back, and it's just like, what is wrong? Oh, wow! Oh it's my god! I mean, it's amazing to be inspiring people like that. To be inspiring artists that you have never met or have anything to well, do with but you're reaching so far it's awesome
2: it's incredibly flattering it really is it, it's incredibly flattering and, I, and I, I I, kind of liken it to myself growing up and how I you know I was always inspired by the likes of Rick Baker or Rob Bottin or mm. Dick Smith and I, I you know I I would copy their makeups and I would um, you know try, try to um, do my own American wealth in Wolverhampton <laughs> And uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I aspired to be these artists. So it's 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 flattering that it's kind of gone full circle in a way. And I never could have imagined that happening. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's super incredible, and um, to have a buzz at the characters that we've been responsible for. But um, one thing I, I I always say is I like to be as hands-on as possible. I do sculpture myself, and painting, and on-set application myself. It's very difficult to do that, factoring it in around a, a huge team that you're running in a department but we always say at the end of the day you are only as good as your team and Mm. we have been so blessed to have the most incredible artist work with us and and stick with us as well for many years. So it's you know these 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 Vecnas and uh, Last of Uses and Game of Thrones and Chernobyls and all that. It's uh, it's it, it's all thanks to our incredible artists that we have here, at the company. So um yeah we can, we can't really thank them enough.
0: I want to kind of put a couple of questions into one and maybe uh, kind of steer it towards the work on Last of Us, and it's just – it's been blowing my mind seeing I have not watched the show, and I need to, but I wanted all of the episodes to be out so I can really smash through them. Um, But I've been seeing the images and stills and stuff on social media, and it's so gruesome but so beautiful at the same time. And I guess where my questioning is going is just kind of talking about how – at the beginnings of the character design and development and stuff like how did you approach that type of thing and where does your kind of research and inspiration and stuff come from when you start a project like that
2: i mean the great thing about the last of us really was it was such a gift because it was it's based on this huge international best-selling video game um, yeah
0: my husband has it (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's insane um, very um, popular. Uh, it, it is uh, created by Neil Druckmann and uh, Naughty Dog. And uh, it's an incredible PlayStation game, which I, I'm not actually a video game player and, yeah. uh, I will hold my hands up. I never played The Last of Us prior to us getting the project, but I was very aware of the creature designs and the game as an IP and uh, all these incredible characters in there. So we priorly worked with Craig Mason, one of the the, the writer and one of the showrunners uh, of the show on Chernobyl uh, for HBO. So when it was actually also when an happened.
0: incredible show.
2: Oh my god! That was. I mean, again, that was super, super lucky to have been involved uh, with that. He was actually working for um, a sort of longtime friend, Daniel Parker, incredible makeup designer, who I'd worked with years and years ago when he used to run a company called Animated Extras. And then he did Band of Brothers and many of the shows since then and did bits and pieces for him. But he, he rang me out of the blue and it was actually, it was as we were about to start the final season of Game of Thrones. And he said, I've been approached about this show, which would... Probably be the most rewarding and complex shows you'll ever work on, and uh, he was absolutely right. It's um, it it's such an incredible show to work on, but um, yeah, again, that was that was written by Craig Mazin, and once I saw a press release about The Last of Us and Craig looking to adapt it as a TV show, mm. so I, I remember just emailing Craig and saying, "My God, you know." If, obviously heard what you're up to I'd, I'd seen him about six months before it was at the Emmys I thing, and we were there for Game of Thrones and Chernobyl and Craig said I've got something in the pipeline you might be interested in so when we saw the press release it was like ah okay yeah there it is uh, so I sort of stalked him for a <laughs> Period. And, um, and he was basically saying, you know, if it was up to him, he would get the entire Chernobyl crew back to do The Last of Us. But the only spanner in the works really was it's potentially he was, was going to shoot in Alberta and Canada. Right. And, um, logistically, we just didn't know how that would work. Mm. Um, but we had a call from one of the producers, Rose Lamb, and we said how at the time we, we were doing. Stranger Things and even though it's only a couple of characters, we were working remotely from the UK and flying backwards and forwards to Atlanta. So we felt it could work as a show but first, Port of Call really, going back to your um, point about the the design and everything and the uh, inspiration was because it was already this huge successful video game Mm. there was a plethora of artwork and um, concept art that was originally conceived for the the game that we were able to go to immediately and um, look at with Neil and Craig and we asked Neil to give us a kind of a greatest hits of what is your favorite art from the game of these mm-hmm. characters these these infected infected victims that are covered in Fungal growths and what have you. I know,
0: and, and they're so pretty. It's ridiculous. It's, 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 so, it's so I funny. love it.
2: I say to people quite often, the ironic thing is, I hate mushrooms. I can't <laughs> see mushrooms, and uh, we get some huge. You're one sh- of
0: those.
2: <laughs> mushrooms. Oh my god. Um, so it's it's been really fascinating because we had all the artwork from naughty dog and um the last of us video game but Mm. but we we looked at an awful lot of real biological reference real we looked at science we looked we looked at a lot of organic materials i started following so many mushroom instagram pages and wow uh, and um, we were looking online at all different types of fungus and how they would grow in different environments, in heat, in cold, in dry, in wet, moist conditions, and what that would do to the textures and the, the colours and the shapes and what have you. Um, so we kind of originally approached the project where we were saying, you know, you've got these these characters which have been infected by this parasite called cordyceps, mm. which sort of grows through the body and sprouts out through the veins and the skin and the brain. And it was trying to come up with some kind of logical explanation as to why things would be a certain color mm. or texture or finish in Different environments, wow. so it, it's been a really fascinating project, and I think again, as a hater of mushrooms, it's it's been quite an interesting project. But <laughs> but also, it's can like,
0: you get that on a shirt, Barry hater well, of I'm, mushrooms?
2: I could do, oh my God. Uh, But it's it's interesting because with a lot of these makeups as well, especially some of the characters, there's, there's a lot of very intricate shapes and repetitive patterns and things, mm. and I, and I think I suffer from something called is it called tripophobia or try phobia or something where, where you, it's a phobia of lots of um repetitive holes or shapes or pitted depressions in the surface of the skin and and that's something like <gasps> i look at these things and i and i get that kind of pairs on the back of your neck kind of standing up and <laughs>
0: oh my god um, i also i but yes i'm the same i think i've had like nightmares of that being on my own skin and just being like ah
2: yeah so yeah not wow. not not great from a personal point of view but um <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but but fascinating. Um,
0: and it's just so amazing that, I mean, so often in your line of work, you're mimicking nature of some kind and drawing from nature, but, like, mm-hmm. you've got the whole human element of it and then the whole fungal kind of side of it, and... Of Course, just trying to make sure it's as real as possible, right? Absolutely, and yeah. as you're saying, like trying to figure out why something would be the color or texture that it is, or giving it kind of a, a purpose and a reason as to it for it to make sense. That's it, and I, and I think you know, a lot of it is, is dictated, it's, it's it
2: kind of tells the story. There's a lot of storytelling there with a lot of these infected characters that, um. Mm you know that how desaturated the fungus is or how colorful the fungus is kind of dictates you know the lifespan of these characters you know if uh, if one of these characters we you know we've got certain first time you're introduced to one of our pieces is um it was a, a, a fake body which is kind of I- I integrated into a wall with oh, all these
0: that the- image seeing that Barry for the first time, was I was just like, "What the hell is that? That is like scary and beautiful." And I just was like, "Zoom in! I got to see what's going on here." It was. <laughs> Amazing, I loved it.
2: But it's it, it's really interesting that you have a character in one episode. Actually, in this, it, was in, it wasn't in the same episode, but you have one character which you're trying to tell this story that this character is basically slumped against a wall. Mm. These growths have grown off his body and kind of spanned out across the wall, mm. and he has died at some point. And to tell mm. the age and the length of time that this character has been supported up against that wall is kind of dictated to by how much life these growths have still got in them or, or the colour And the texture of these things. So he he was fairly colourful. And then we had another scene where the two main characters go into a museum environment and they're walking up a staircase and there are all these dried, wizened kind of infected bodies all over the landscape of this um, stairway and landing going up and all these mushrooms and cordyceps are growing at the walls, up onto the ceiling across all the banisters and everything but everything's got a very desaturated grey dry ashen like colour and texture to them to Mm. tell the story that they've been there for many years you know Mm. it's like decades almost so it's been fascinating it was was, was sort of working with the art department and the production designer John Pano as well as in Mm. to try to establish the colour schemes and the palettes had to work very well with the set design as well and everything had to work In conjunction and there had to be a continuity between one thing to the other where you have these shapes growing up over banisters and chairs and office tables and things but there had to be in a way we wanted to create these shapes where you couldn't tell where one thing had finished and another thing had started so it's it's trying to integrate things to make things look seamless so it's it it was a huge challenge I think The Last of Us was and it was the first time we'd ever really attacked doing any kind of environments rather than Mm character designs or prosthetics or creatures it was actually dressing sets and um, that was something we, which we were sort of given the task of quite early on in the build actually and it's something which when we took the project on we didn't think we would be a part of so um, it, for us that was that was a really exciting element of the show and it's something I think we'd be looking forward to do on the second season as well.
0: Yeah I mean there's a definitely a bit of organising and forward planning with that type of thing isn't there? It's not like you can just whip something together and be like oh yeah oh, oh no it completely doesn't
2: That's work, <laughs> it's and it's always with the, with the first when when you join a franchise as well if if it's the mm. first season of something it's it's the build is so huge for you to to do a show like The Last of Us we had some sequences which we had like 60 to 80 stunt performers and extras who were covered in fungus and all kinds of infected appliances and we had a sequence which was up quite early on in the shoot so to actually create thousands of appliances that we had to generate which were generic and could be rotated in different configurations and put in different places on the body but we had a huge team here in the UK just churning out a huge production line of appliances and then we had a micro team out in Canada run by Paul Spateri who were receiving all these appliances then working with the costume department who were having to kind of integrate these into the costume elements the tops and the bottoms as well having funguses growing there it's a really huge um, process but I think it's always doing the first season in a franchise like that is probably one of the hardest because you are creating this catalogue of moulds. Yeah,
0: you're establishing a lot.
2: Absolutely. And it's yeah, stuff that yeah. you can continue to use for years
0: to come as well. Oh, that's so cool. I love it. I can't wait to watch all of it. I'm just going to smash <laughs> it out. Um, so many, uh, Just I, I keep trying to avoid imagery and like little clips of it and people's opinions and I'm just like, ah, I really need to get into it. So that's my homework. So, After doing this for as long as you have, Barry, and the experience that you have, is there something that you wish you had known or kind of been told before getting into this field?
2: Something we we say to a lot of trainees that we hire is Mm. that um, it's um, about being personable, being able to communicate well with others and having a lot of common sense. And I, I think probably when I started off, I think I did an awful lot of tasks and would be asked to do certain things at companies which I would think why why the hell am I cleaning the bins out or why am I sweeping or why am I making the cup of tea? And it's 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 really making the most of the opportunity of being in an environment surrounded by lots of artists and just acting like a sponge, really, walking around and just sucking up as much information as possible from others. So I think, you know, not really knowing that at the time, but something we say to a lot of um, youngsters coming in now is, like, use the opportunity and speak to as many people as possible to get as much knowledge as possible as well. It's interesting, I think... Uh, um, when I first started out, I think makeup effects was still on quite a bit of a high at the time, mm. sort of mid to late nineties. And then when I started on the Harry Potter films, it was very interesting because it was a 10 year period mm. and it almost saw the introduction of a lot of heavy CGI in films. Yeah. by like the advent of digital technology became really huge at the start of the, the, the noughties. And as we were coming towards the end of the harry potter series there started to be a little bit of a combo happening at the time and i just remember it was from about 2002 onwards for about 10 years there was a lot of talk of people saying why are you doing this for a living because it's it's a dying art and you know give it five or ten years and the prosthetics and makeup effects won't be around anymore Mm. and um, i remember thinking at the time god you know they could be right because a lot of people were getting into digital software like zbrush and other digital modeling tools and we started doing it ourselves in the harry potter films and uh, i remember thinking at the time maybe our days are numbered and i think it's interesting how it's almost since the 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 recent star wars films and what neil scanlon has done for the creature department has been incredible really you know it's introducing lots of animatronic technology back into film and I also think with with makeup effects I'm feeling that, that the most successful results, in today's film and tv is a combination between mm. practical and digital effects i mean i think my, my biggest love is still for character makeups and old age makeups and transforming actors phases using subtle appliances and aging them you know 30 40 50 years or whatever i'm still a, a, a huge lover of that but working doing creature design and fantasy shows mm. i'm finding as say that, that the best effects are a combination of digital and practical and i think you know Way back when I first started out, and it felt like there was potentially an end in sight, and our days numbered. Yeah. I wish I Airy. could have said to myself back then, "Don't worry about Don't it." Don't worry. Yeah. Makeup effects is going to be like vinyl. There will be a resurgence, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I love that. You know, it's, it's come back in, you know. It's yeah. it's retro, but it's you know it has come back. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the effects, whether they're practical or digital. But I, I'm a strong believer that I think that the most successful things are are a happy marriage now of, of the two. And I think that character dechna we did for Stranger Things is is like a perfect example of that because it was. He was he was a heavily practical character, but mm. the VFX department augmented a lot of movement in his vines. They removed parts of his face, his nose, and what have you, and they they did things we could never do practically. And on both the Twos, it's absolutely beautiful.
0: And the thing is, like as the viewer as well, I think uh, I feel like audiences had a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to when things started to just the characters were just a visual effects character and it's like if it wasn't done incredibly incredibly well it was just it took you out of what you're watching you'd be like what the fuck is that like what have they done and then yeah being able to like I will as an audience member much prefer to say something that I can feel like I could see and touch and that is there and yeah having that marriage of of the two that there's just a, a a little bit of magic that's thrown in there with the digital side of things absolutely um, yeah it's yeah. a it's a nice it's a nice combo absolutely and i and i think
2: you know for for both practical and digital characters there are benchmarks and there have been bars that have been set and still mm. have been beaten it's like you know going going back again referring to the american werewolf work by rick baker it's like some of the work in that was is still you know top of the bar and it's and rob boteen's work on um john carpenter's the thing is still it's still a benchmark of practical effects you know the the design and you know the, the the way those those characters were created i think is um it's still beautiful to this day and haven't been bettered. And, and then from a digital point of view, this, this character like the Davy Jones character from like um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I think it's yeah. stunning. You know, it's yeah. such a beautiful character. And I think a lot of it is down to the artists involved. Mm. Probably time that they've been allowed as well yeah. there's a lot to do with it. And, and probably the direction and the you know the, the directors and producers they're working with as well who who are giving them the opportunity and the right feedback as well yeah um, it's very interesting so yeah. very
0: cool i love so, it so what do you think has what's one big thing that you think has changed most in the industry since you started apart from what we were just talking about i think i think materials have
2: changed mm-hmm. dramatically um, yeah. I feel really privileged to have been part of an industry where, starting out, we would use go to tried and tested materials that have been used for at the time, you know, foam latex had been used for like 60, 70 years or, or more, you know, since um, the Wizard of Oz, you know, foam yeah. latex used, and, you know, since. Planet of the Apes. John Chambers was using it uh, for all the ape makeups, and Dick Smith used it throughout his career as well. And I mm-hmm. and I think we we know we used foam latex, the, and we still use foam latex. But I think it wasn't until the end of the 90s, which was sort of the advent of um, silicon prosthetics, it was a really exciting time. I think because there were lots of people, you know, across the pond in the U.S. or New Zealand, Australia, and or, or in the U.K. or in Europe, and they were they were all racing. I think at the time to, to um, develop this technology of um, using silicon as a material and I think it's great to have a choice nowadays with materials You know, there's not one material which does every job and yeah. we have characters which are a combination of materials again Vecna was a combination of silicone and uh, foam latex materials and the, all, all the the fungus that we created on the last of us was a combo of silicon and foam latex and I was chatting to Mark Cooley about a week or so ago actually, he was in mm-hmm. the back and we were talking about his work on on Elvis. And Mm. I was completely oblivious to the fact that Austin Butler had a gelatin chin on throughout the whole film.
0: Yeah, I didn't realise until I spoke to Mark either. But I also didn't realise it was gelatin.
2: It was gelatin, yeah. the there were various appliances that uh, they created for Austin which were gelatin and, and I think the main reason when we used it for, for Merrill on um, the Margaret Thatcher makeup it was a mm. standalone appliance in the, in the, uh, on the bridge of a nose and uh, for small little isolated pieces on the face I think gelatin mm. is still an amazing material it blends absolutely seamless, uh, seamlessly into the skin and awesome. um it's it's a it's a really rewarding material to use as well it's beautiful to paint if you you're blending into skin tones so it's like every material has a has its place to think so um I think um, the biggest thing that's probably changed in my career has definitely been the materials and the use of them for different reasons. So, uh, yeah. um, and it's, it's, it's the same as not only the materials and the prosthetics, but it's also like adhesives have got stronger and better as well. And it's, um, you know, there's been some inc- incredible advances I think over the last 20, 25 years or so. Yeah, I've been, been very lucky to have been part of everything really.
0: Do you remember the first project or makeup that you did that was in silicon or using silicon?
2: I think the first project I did a silicon appliance was it's a movie called Perfume, which is directed by Tom Twyker and it was shot in Berlin. I think was it Berlin? Yeah. Went to, and there was a young actress called uh, Rachel Herdwood, and she had long, sort of lower back length hair, really, really long hair. And it was for a scene where she had to have her head shaved, and she mm-hmm. had short, stubbly hair. So, uh, we made a silicone ball cap for her. And um, it was a different silicon material to what to what we use now. From what I remember, it was a different skin as well. I can't remember what we used it's the skin at the time. Okay. Um I think it was the vinyl skin. But the edges were awful. <laughs> 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 I did not used so much filler in my life. Oh my god! Right, it on. Um, but that was probably the first one of the first makeups I did. That was for animated extras uh, working with okay. Nick Williams. And, uh, and then the next show was actually uh, it' was a film called Stardust and it' um, mm-hmm. uh, working with Nick again at animated and um, I did a, um, an, a an aging make on uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and it was um, they were all silicon appliances and again it was still quite early in the I guess in the advent of silicon prosthetics so yeah they were Really the finest prosthetics maze, um but that it was it was a real learning curve that project was definitely uh, learning how to cast and uh, and pre-paint silicon as well as apply it um yeah i think um but, but harry potter was probably the, the, the big project in the uk where we all started um using really getting appliance. into it yeah and that, that really really pushing it so i know nick nick started doing silicon appliance I think on the on the mummy uh, or is it the mummy or the mummy too probably the mummy actually and that was with uh, mark mm. and uh paul Scateri, i think were developing it so uh, yeah exciting times back at, in the early 2000s i think
0: yeah very so what kind of changes would you like to see in the future in our industry
2: um i would love to see productions give us longer time to make things um I can't see that happening, though. Like um, you're
0: dreaming, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I um, but I like I like your positive uh, thinking. Let's all think that, and maybe it'll happen.
2: Yeah, I think change is really. I mean, it, it's. I think it's probably a logistics thing. Yeah, more more than anything, I think. Um, I think having um, it's one thing having great opportunities to work on a show but it's another thing mm. being given the correct amount of time to to do the work as best as possible and I think um, it's that thing again going back to being very passionate and proud about what we do and mm. uh, I think when you have limited time to do things then you're always your worst critic and very objective and I think you, you, you look at your work and you're always looking at it from the point of view of oh my god if only we'd had about three more weeks and we could have but on this current project actually we had a uh we have a handful of characters which we were trying to develop one sort of technique and we sort of just ran out of time um mm. but saying that we sort of retro worked some makeups to get exactly the same effect of what we were after so it was, it was kind of good in a way because we ran out of time and we had to sort of think outside the box and come up with the, the same technique we wanted so uh but i always always say going forward i think um but I would love productions to. It's been a train of thought for several years that I think a lot of huge, mega budget productions have this mindset of, we'll fix it in post or we'll, we'll do it in post. And I yeah. just think, my God, for how many years before we had the beauty of CGI and in post production in, to that level, it was all done in camera.
0: Yeah. It was just, you know. Just like, how much con- is that going to cost you to fix everything in post? Like, Absolutely. come on. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But it, I, I always wonder, it's kind of like I go through, I don't know, like waves of feeling like, so it's like, why do we not get the time? Is it just our craft is not respected enough to be given the time? Is it because for years we've just been breaking our backs to make it happen in time and then the outcome has been you know amazing um so they're like well why would you need more time because you did it in this short amount of time and it looked great but it's almost just being able to educate those that are working out those budgets and those times and stuff to be like you almost feel like going oh you're happy with this well (laughs) It could be like 10 times better if you'd given me two more weeks. You have no idea what it could be absolutely. if I'd had time. <laughs> you just always feel like saying it out loud to be like, okay, you're happy with it. Yeah, it's great, but it could be better.
2: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and I and I think that's the thing of being a true artist as well, you know, you I I always think it could always be better. Um, mm. but uh, equally being super proud of what our team's achieved in in a short space of time. And mm. I think it was really fascinating when I, that period I was saying about coming back from COVID and we had mm. about seven projects on. And I think the interesting thing of, of, of working on seven different productions is obviously no matter how big or small that production is, that any one production – obviously thinks that their show is the priority over any right. others. And yeah. it's very interesting seeing how different TV shows or films are run and the attitudes, I think, through from the production level. And I think going back, it's referring back to Stranger Things, why I say that's been such a highlight is... I think Matt and Ross Duffer are artists and they're they're obviously filmmakers, but they, they are very considerate and they're very passionate about what they do. And they're, they're super respectful to their team and all the, all, all the artists that are on their crew. And they never want us to cut corners or they, um, they've got an incredible at first AD and producer called Tudor Jones, who scheduled the Stranger Things schedule around us pretty much just so we had the time that we need for the build. I've never known that before. It's, yeah, it's awesome. It's really, really respectful. So it's it's fascinating working on different shows and just seeing those approaches and how differently people work. You know, we've worked on some huge, big-budget projects, and there's very little time to create things. And obviously, I know schedules change and things get rewritten, but it's, it's sad sometimes because I think mm. you... What you do deliver is exactly what you say. What you do deliver, it, it's sometimes a shadow of what you could have given them. But you know, such is life. I'm not complaining. We get to really cool stuff, hang out with all our yeah, friends. So exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so, Barry, if I set you up in your trailer or your workspace and you had all your bits and pieces with you, if I took something away from you, what oh, would god. what would it be that would kind of freak you out? What do you not want to be working without on a daily basis?
2: Oh god! Um, I think something that's really daft that I've recommended to a lot of our team um, to get in the past over the years, mm-hmm. and it's not makeup related, but it's on. A, mm-hmm. If you're on a makeup trailer, get a stopwatch or like a timer that you using, uh, mm-hmm. like a digital timer that you might use in the kitchen that you can yeah. press stop and start on, because the amount of times when you're doing makeups for mm-hmm. long lengths of time hours at a time and you sit down with an ad and you work out your call time what time the actor's going to sit in your chair what Mm. time they're going to have breakfast what time they're going to have the second break and what have you and then what time they need to be out of your chair for hair and makeup or costume Um, yeah get a stopwatch because nine times out of ten the actor will be late in the morning or they haven't Mm. shaved and you Mm. have to spend 15 minutes shaving them and then you start the makeup 20 minutes into your process when that should have been the point where you started. Then they have the breakfast, then they go for a cigarette. Then they have second breakfast. Then an AD comes on and starts talking to them. Then a producer comes on and starts talking about the scene. And then one of their colleagues, <laughs> actors comes on and starts chatting to them. There's a good yeah. hour or two during that process where you can't mm. actually put a brush on their face. So yeah. it was actually Dave Elsie on, on The Wolfman said, get yourself mm. a timer. He said, every time an AD steps on the, on the bus to say, how long are you going to be? I stop the timer and so when they look at the call sheet and it says you're going to have four hours in the chair you just need to make sure you get that allotted time and i know it sounds like a a really regimented way of working but it's it's great because it also helps you keep to the time as well and if you get a makeup done if it's it's that thing of um Working with Duncan Jarman as well is great because we, we timed the processes. Doing the Vecna makeup, it was like a seven and a half hour process, and we would put the stopwatch on. And every point during the makeup, I have to get a certain appliance on. We would note down the time and mm. write down a list of times. So the following morning, we knew by twenty-five minutes we had to have the ball cap and the back of headpiece on. By so and so time, we've got the chest on. By so and so, and it's really good because it just it just keeps you in line with your makeup. And you can be Accurate with your timings, and you can make sure you get the time that you're you're needed.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, and then you can answer all those questions of like, what happened? Why were they not out on time? And you're like, wow, absolutely.
2: <laughs> we had to do four hours. We actually did it in three hours thirty-eight. I've got it on my stopwatch here. But, uh, yeah,
0: but with the interruptions and everything else that goes on, well, this I is know what It sounds happens. <laughs> really
2: silly. I know it sounds really silly, but I found that's been really important. And then um,
0: no, it is. I mean, I've I've been on productions where I've just simply given my team like a notepad and a pen and just being like please jot down what time they sit in your chair and leave your chair Absolutely. so we have a you know a record of how long it took or whether they were late or whether they left your chair early or late or just all those things just so you can really yeah watch time because yeah. it is important. Time is money, as they say, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, some, something else we've started using a lot of recently, I mean, we always used to use hair dryers, but I think with, um, obviously, with silicon adhesives, it's like, um, mm. if you use Telesis, you have the solvents that you need to flash off before you push the appliances down. So we've sometimes used um, hair dryers just to blow the air away, but we've we've started using these little um, USB rechargeable electric fans that you can buy from Amazon or online. And... That handheld. You can just pop them in your pocket, paint your glue on, quiet. get it out. It's quiet. It blows a little mm. bit of cool air onto the skin. And um, again, back on Stranger Things, working with the incredible Mike McCash. Oh, my God, we love Mike. And he would built this fan, which was, I might be wrong, but I think it was a, a Makita drill, which was oh, yeah. like... Battery-operated drill, which mm-hmm. he rehashed it and turned it into a a, a portable battery-operated fan.
0: Yeah, we were using those back on oh Hobbit for oh our God. dwarves. We'd be and hitting the was- yeah back of their yeah. neck, putting it down the back of their shirt.
2: <laughs> so so good and so powerful, yeah. quiet. Yeah. And, um, this this thing thing that Mike had actually, he sent it to me last year, bless his heart, after we'd finished Stranger Things. But we, uh, it was huge, and we coined it. Um, thor's hammer because it did it a- <laughs> Thor's yeah. hammer um so we were always using it so i do i'd always recommend getting a a, a handheld cordless fan uh yeah. really really useful you seemed like and... really mundane things to recommend but uh...
0: no but i mean <laughs> god you know our kits by the end of it it's <laughs> um <laughs> and what one person would you like to hear on the podcast Ooh, um Oh my god,
2: there's so many people. Uh, there's so <laughs> many people. You've probably interviewed him already, but I'd really like to hear a podcast on the life and career of Adrian Moreau, actually, who's just on the makeup on Brendan Fraser for the um for the whale.
0: Yeah. Um, I've spoken to him about the whale, but I have not done his career journey. So yeah, that'd be awesome.
2: I would love to to hear a podcast with adrian i think i've followed his career uh, so again since i was a teenager yeah he's um, he's been doing awesome. quite a while but it's beautiful work brilliant
0: amazing barry thank you so much i know that i've been harassing you for quite some time to get on the podcast and you're a very busy man so i appreciate your time and i've loved talking to you today it's been awesome
2: likewise thank you so much jamie thanks a lot for this opportunity it's been really good to talk to you
0: Okay, Last Looks crew, thanks for listening. And remember, if you love it, share it. A quick scroll down and you'll find our show notes. Or maybe you'd like to give your support and leave a five-star review. Go on, I know you want to. Search The Last Looks Podcast on Instagram, Facebook or TikTok, whichever one tickles your fancy. And a massive shout out to the husband, Brett Stanley. Without his patience and tech support, this whole podcast situation simply does not happen and cheers to liliana rose for her fabulous voice acting talents okay last looks crew that's a wrap for me i don't need to be told twice to get out of here so bye i'll catch you on the flip side
1: that's a wrap people